if you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. If you know that you, just like Jesus, cannot do life on your own, and you come to grips with that fact, and you believe it, then prayer makes complete sense, doesn't it? It's like, duh, of course. Well, that's what Paul Miller says in his book, A Praying Life, Connecting with God in a Distracting World. It's the best book that I've read on prayer, and I highly recommend it to you. If you're struggling, if you struggle to pray, you want to read more about prayer, get this book. He weaves a lot of personal stories through it. Uh, I cannot recommend it enough. And chapter 5 was very helpful for me as I worked on this sermon. So where do we get the idea that Jesus could not do life on his own? Where do we get the idea that prayer made complete sense to Jesus? Well, Mark tells us that in his gospel. Look at Mark chapter 1 beginning at verse 35. Hear the word of God. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. So verse 35 here of Mark chapter 1 is actually pretty shocking if you stop and think about it. Jesus got up very early in the morning to pray. This is pre-Starbucks, y'all. I don't think they had coffee back then. To get up early in the morning while it is still dark, that's shocking, isn't it? To get up early in the morning while it is still dark to pray, that is shocking. To get up early in the morning while it is still dark to pray and you're the eternal son of God, that is shocking. It's shocking in the sense that we may find it hard to believe that Jesus needed to get up early while it was still dark in order to pray. Now why? Why does Jesus need to pray? He's the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the Son of God. Why in the world does he need to pray? He's God for crying out loud, right? What need does God have? Well, it's true, Jesus is God. And as God, he has no need. And as God, he had no need that morning in Capernaum when his alarm clock went off. But Jesus was and is not merely God. In the incarnation, he is a man too. He's a man. He's a human being. And as a man, as a human being, he had needs. He needed to eat. He needed clothes. He needed to go to the restroom. He needed sleep. But more than all of those physical needs, in the incarnation, Jesus needed his Father. He needed to get alone with God and pray. He needed to pray more than he needed sleep. He was dependent upon the Holy Spirit to empower him for his mission. And prayer was one of the ways that Jesus received the strength that he needed to accomplish his mission. So it's true. Jesus needed time with God just as much as we do. Let that sink in. Jesus needed time with God just as much as we do. As the eternal Son of God. 
And he never used his God powers to override his humanity. Please don't think that way about Jesus. Jesus never used his power as God to get a leg up on humanity. He was a human being and he was God in the incarnation. And he's still a human being and he's still God in his resurrection. He is the God-man. So what do we mean when we say that Jesus is the God-man. Here's what we mean. That Jesus is 100% God and he is 100% man. 100% God and 100% man. But that's not all. We cannot stop there. There's more. We must also add this phrase when we talk about Jesus being the God-man. With those two natures united In one person. It's not enough to say that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. That's not enough. We must always, in the same breath and in the same sentence, say that those two natures, God and man, are united in one person. That's biblical orthodox Christology. Jesus is 100% God and 100% man with those two natures united in one person. If we don't add that extra phrase, united in one person, those two natures united in one person, then we will be in danger of slipping into one of the three Christological heresies that popped up in church history. Nestorianism, Eutychianism, and Apollinarianism. If you're interested in what those are, and if you want to find out, am I one of those? (laughs) Well, then you can see my series in Hebrews where I covered them in detail. Jesus did not use his God powers, if you will, to help himself. When he was tired, he didn't think, well, I'm God, so... Or, I'm hungry in the desert. Oh, man, I want some tri-tip bad. Oh, tri-tip. There it is. He didn't do that. He did not use his God powers to help himself. His divinity did not override his humanity when he was in a pinch. As God, he had no needs. But as a human being, Jesus had needs. Food, clothing, and shelter, and time with God, time with his Father. In his humanity, Jesus was desperately dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And that's why he sneaks away to pray very early in the morning. And what Mark is telling us here in verse 35, and what Jesus says in other places, is that Jesus is very dependent on his Father. In the incarnation, Jesus becomes childlike and has to depend upon his Father. Jesus becomes childlike when he talks about prayer. John 5.19, the Son of God can do nothing of his own accord. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. And so when Jesus tells us later in John's Gospel, in John 15.5, that apart from him, we can do nothing, he is reminding us that we are children and we must live in dependence upon our Heavenly Father too. And when Jesus gets away to pray here in Mark, he is telling us that prayer In its essence, it's a relationship. Prayer is about spending time with God. Understand this, Grace. Prayer is a relationship. 
first and foremost. It is not a duty to be performed. It is not primarily a discipline. If we view prayer as a duty, something that we have to do, then we won't want to pray. Or if we view prayer as merely a discipline that we must work out, then we won't want to pray. Or we will pray and then we'll just check off our to-do list and we'll feel pretty good about ourselves and how good we are at one of these spiritual disciplines. Prayer is a relationship. It's about spending time with our Heavenly Father. It's about getting to know God. It's communion. Prayer is the tangible proof that you are taking Jesus at his word when he said that you can do nothing without him. Prayer is tangible proof right before your eyes. You're taking Jesus at his word saying, I believe you when you said that I can do nothing apart from you. That's what prayer is. I believe what you're saying, Jesus. When you get alone with God to pray, you are acknowledging that you are a dependent child that you can't do diddly squat without Jesus. When we get away to pray, just like Jesus does in verse 35 here, we're telling ourselves that we are not in control and that we desperately need God. Nothing could be more countercultural to our self-dependence than to pray. And when you get alone to pray with God, you are launching an assault on your selfishness and on your self-dependence. You are sending scud missiles onto the independent territories of your heart. You're raining down bombs on those unevangelized territories in your heart. And we all have those places of self-dependence that need to be destroyed. Paul Zoll said this about the late pastor and theologian J.C. Ryle. He said, Yet, like many spiritual people there were still unevangelized dark continents inside him. You see, no matter how much you have grown as a Christian, no matter how long you have been a Christian, there are still unevangelized dark continents inside every one of us. There are places in our hearts where we need the light of the gospel. There are places in our hearts and in our minds where the radiance of the glory of God has not penetrated. There are places in our hearts and minds where the love of God has not penetrated. There are places and territories and dark continents inside all of us that need to be blasted with the gospel. And when we get away from the busyness of the world to pray... We are launching missiles and dropping bombs on those independent places in our heart. You see, by nature, we are very self-sufficient, right? Self-reliant, independent. You see this with children very early on, don't you? Let me help you. No, I want to do it. I want to do it. You're going to mess it up. I want to do it. It's early on. We're very self-sufficient, very self-reliant, very independent. It's in our blood as Americans, isn't it? We bleed independence in this country, right? And that's fine for a nation, but it's not okay for a Christian. It's not okay for a church. Part of the reason why many Americans don't pray is because it's in our blood to be independent. We don't want to depend on anyone. If you cut us, we bleed standing on our two feet, don't we? Our own two feet. 
But that doesn't jive with Jesus at all. The kingdom of God is not American. The kingdom of God is not American. The kingdom of God wants nothing to do with independence. The kingdom of God, as demonstrated by Jesus here in Mark 1, is all about being dependent upon someone outside of us. And prayer reminds us of that. Jesus reminds us of that. Jesus got away from the busyness of ministry to pray. And if he needed that, how much more do we? Martin Luther was once asked what his plans for the following day were, and here's how he answered. Work, work from early until late. In fact, I have so much to do that I shall spend the first three hours in prayer. And I'm sure Luther did have so much to do that he had to pray for three hours every day. And there may be a season of life, perhaps, where God calls you to that or you decide to do that yourself. I don't know. Okay? I'm not quoting Luther today to make any of us feel bad because if you're like me, I could always pray more. I am not, by quoting Luther, I am not saying that you need to pray for three hours every day. Some of you are just like, oh, thank you, Jesus. In fact, your prayer life, that's between you and Jesus. In fact, I don't think it's by accident that the biblical authors never tell us how long Jesus prayed. God knew that if Scripture told us that Jesus prayed for five hours every day, then there would be some Christians who would go around and try to make everybody pray for five hours every single day. How long you pray is between you and Jesus. It's none of my business. Let me say that again. How long you pray is between you and Jesus. I am not going to try and bind your conscience to something that is not biblical. It's between you and your Lord. All I want to do today is to encourage you to pray, to spend time with the God that you love. This week, one of the prayers that I read out of the Valley of Vision, which is this collection of Puritan prayers, said this, My recovery cannot spring from any cause in me. I can destroy, but cannot save myself. And because I know that I cannot save myself, that I I cannot make myself recover in any way, that I can only destroy myself, then I should pray. If it were not for the grace of God, I would destroy my life and the life of my family. And because I know that I could destroy my life and the life of my family, it makes me want to pray. I know what a threat I am to myself. And so I need to pray. I'm needy. I'm just like a two-year-old. You know, we had our, our, this is off the notes, we had our two-year-old nephew with us this week. And so we had seven kids, nine people total, nine sinners in one house, okay? I could just talk about that all day. And little little baby Cade, that's what we call him. Baby Cade is just running around. I mean, he's just, I mean, he's got kind of got this awareness of the world. He knows what's going on. He knows when he's hungry and things like that. But he is absolutely dependent upon everyone. He's dependent upon people to give him food. He's dependent on people to change his diapers, to, to know you've got to take a nap down because you're having a meltdown, so you need a nap. He's totally, and you know what two-year-olds can do? Two-year-olds boys can do to a house with toys, I mean, 
we had three boys and then three girls in that order. So a lot of like the loud, rambunctious energy stuff, we got on the front end. And on the back end of life, it's like tea parties and things that are pink and glitter, things like that. And we get a two-year-old boy back into our life this week. And it's like chaos. And I thought about it this morning as I was praying. I just said, God, you know, I'm like Cade. I'm needy. I'm dependent on you. I can make messes well, and I need your help. I know what a threat I am to myself, and that scares me. And so I need to pray. I must pray. And I hope you realize this about yourself, too. And I hope it makes you want to pray. But I'm not going to tell you how long to pray. That's between you and Jesus. But I do hope that you do pray. Let me add this also about prayer. I think we all could pray somewhere between three minutes and three hours a day, right? Surely we could all find our sweet spot somewhere between three minutes and three hours every day, right? The point of all the passages in the Bible about prayer is that we would be encouraged to pray, not to make us feel like losers because we don't pray for three hours like Martin Luther. The point of Mark in telling us in verse 35 that Jesus got away to pray early in the morning is not to make us feel bad or to heap shame upon us because we're not a morning person. Mark's point is to encourage us to pray. Just like Jesus. Mark wants to show us and show the original audience who were suffering. He wants to show us that we are all needy children who are desperately dependent upon our Father. Mark is simply telling us, if you know that you, like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. It just makes sense. You can't do diddly squat without Jesus. If Jesus needed to pray, then I know that I need to. And I think there should be two ways that we pray. I think there are two ways that the Bible lays out for us to pray. Short prayers and long prayers. That's all I'm going to say about it. I thought I was going to give you some great answer. There are both short and long prayers in the Bible. There are quick prayers uttered, and there are times when we need to get away like Jesus for an extended period of time. That means then that we can't simply just pray short prayers only and expect to know God. Relationships take time, time spent with one another. As Paul Miller says in his book, you can't build a relationship by sound bites. But you also can't maintain a relationship just by having one conversation and then never talking the rest of the day. You cannot maintain a relationship with God if you, like Martin Luther, begin each day with three hours of prayer and then never pray again all day. Imagine waking up in the morning and you only talk with your spouse over coffee as you're having breakfast. And then you go to the rest of the day and you never talk to your spouse at all. You go to Costco together, but you don't talk on the way there. You don't talk while you're in the store. And then you have lunch at Chick-fil-A, but you don't talk about how awesome sweet tea is and how that's going to be the official drink of heaven. You don't talk about that. You don't talk about how glorious waffle fries are. I had Chick-fil-A yesterday, by the way. The only time you open your mouth is to put the goodness that is Chick-fil-A inside of it. And then the rest of the day, you carry on, and you never say a word again to your spouse until the next morning. That's how some of us approach prayer. Sometimes we approach prayer and we say, oh, I just pray without ceasing all day long. 
little bits here and little bits there. I'm in the drive-thru at Starbucks, I pray to Jesus. And then as I'm peeling potatoes for dinner, I pray to Jesus. Just little sound bites all day. Well, you can't build a relationship with Jesus by sound bites. Nor can you build a relationship with Jesus only by talking to him in the morning and then never talking to him for the rest of the day. Oh, well, I prayed this morning for three hours. I already talked to Jesus today. Do I need to again? See, sometimes you pray short prayers, quick prayers, and sometimes you have extended periods of time for prayer. I think we need both. And sometimes you'll just have to pray wherever you are and whenever you can make it happen. And that's what Jesus does here in verse 35. Life is busy. Life is busy if you have kids, right? Sarah Edwards, wife of theologian Jonathan Edwards, (coughs) would sometimes just sit at their kitchen table and pull her apron up over her head and pray. She would make her own little prayer closet right there at the kitchen table, hiding under her apron and just talking to Jesus. And her children soon, soon learned that when mommy had her apron up over her head and had a wooden spatula in hand, then you shouldn't bother her. The Edwards children learned that if mommy had her apron up over her head and there was a wooden spatula in her hand, then to interrupt her would mean that you would have trouble sitting down on your bottom for a while. And so here's the bottom line. I don't want to bind anyone's conscience today. Pray for extended times when time allows. And pray little prayers throughout the day when needed. Pray for extended times when time allows. And then pray little prayers throughout the day when needed. Short prayers and long prayers. Don't focus on the length. Don't focus on how eloquent you are. Just pray. I told my five-year-old daughter this morning, Piper, I said, you cannot obey unless Jesus helps you. You just can't do it on your own. I said, can you say help? She said, yes. I said, that's all you got to say. That's probably the best prayer. That's probably prayer in a nutshell is help. Prayer is just talking to Jesus. And when you do, focus on Jesus, not how long you're, you're talking to Jesus or how you're talking to Jesus. Just talk to Jesus. Now, let me say one more thing, and then we'll get back to Jesus praying along because his quiet time won't last very long. Jesus' prayer time is about to get interrupted like Sarah Edwards. So one more thing about prayer. As it relates to us, as it relates to grace, we're in a season where we are focusing on prayer as a church. We're in a season where we've been reminded that we need God. And that's not a bad place to be, is it? The sweet spot of life And ministry is recognizing and coming to grips with your weakness and trusting Jesus' ability to meet your need. The sweet spot of life and the sweet spot of ministry is coming to grips with recognizing your weakness and then trusting Jesus' ability to meet your need. It's realizing that what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 is The normal Christian life. Paul says, but he, God, said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, 
then I am strong. Really? Really, Paul? Really? Yes, that's the sweet spot of life in ministry because that's just reality, isn't it? That is reality, is that we are weak and we need Jesus. If we try to convince ourselves that we're not, we're in for a world of hurt. Realizing just how weak and needy and dependent you are is the sweet spot of life. Do you feel desperate this morning? Like, I need God to come through for me. Do you? That's the sweet spot of life right there. It doesn't feel like it, but if you can embrace that, that's where the joy comes. Because the reality is that you are desperate and needy. Seems like a scary place to be, but it is reality. It's where we are, whether we admit it or not. The problem comes when we try to do life and ministry without Jesus, and we don't want to do that here at Grace. We want to continue what we started last Sunday evening. For those of you who came out for our time of corporate prayer, we want to encourage you to set aside times to pray for grace, to pray for this church in your small groups, your Sunday school classes, the ministries that you are involved in, wherever you gather as a church family, at Starbucks, at Panera, at a deacon's meeting, when the worship team comes into practice, Wherever, set aside a few minutes to pray specifically for this church. We want the doctrine that we believe on paper to really become who we are in our relationships. We want the gospel that we love and cherish here at Grace and we affirm on paper. We want that to become our culture here. We want gospel doctrine and gospel culture, both. So... Will you pause and pray with others? We want to reach our city with the gospel. Will you pause and pray with others? Maybe you could do something like pray for grace as a family every night as you eat dinner. And you make that your thing. We're going to pray for the church. Or you could fast. How about every Friday you fast one meal? Fasting Fridays or something. Or take 10 minutes in your Sunday school class and say, we're going to pray for the church. And then one week in your Sunday school class... Just spend it all in prayer. I mean, get wild and crazy and saying, we're going to talk about how desperate we are and we're going to seek God's face. Let's all find some ways that we can focus on prayer for our church. Now, I know there's a group that is going to be gathering at 5.30 p.m. in the education building right before our 6 p.m. service, and I believe it starts next week. Check the bulletin. But come and join us at, at 5.30. Everyone who's dependent Everyone who is needy, everyone who is a child of God is welcome to come and say, God, we need you more than we even know. Now, we need to get back to Mark because Jesus loves praying. But we'll see that he's about to get interrupted while he is praying. And what he says just might surprise us. Look again at verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Now, why did Peter run to find Jesus in the early morning hours while it was still dark? Why did Peter and those who were with him scour the outskirts of Capernaum looking for Jesus? Here's why. Because... Peter saw Jesus the day before do an exorcism in church. And then he saw him heal his mother-in-law. 
And then he saw Jesus do both of those for hours on end inside his own living room that Saturday night. This is what Peter saw all day. Healing, exorcism, healing, exorcism. That's what Jesus did that night. That's what Jesus did in Peter's living room. Healing, exorcism, healing, exorcism. Next, Peter saw it with his own eyes. So when Peter wakes up the next morning, people are camped outside his door. They're sleeping in tents on his front lawn because they want to see Jesus. And Peter can't find Jesus in the guest bedroom, so he scours the village looking for Jesus, and he still can't find him. And then Peter and company finally find Jesus out in a desolate place. And Peter tells Jesus, everyone is looking for you. Now let's not rush past that sentence. Because what Peter actually says here exposes one of those unevangelized dark continents that's inside all of us. Let's be honest. Don't we all long to hear those words, everyone is looking for you. If we're honest, we do. We want to be important. We want to be loved. We want to be known. We want to matter. We want to believe that if we left, then the whole place would collapse, right? We want people to react to our Facebook posts, don't we? Michael Horton said, We have to live up to our Facebook profile. It's the new version of salvation by works. That's the new version of justification by works. Is who am I online? Who am I in social media? What am I projecting? What sort of image am I projecting to the world online? And then I've got to live up to it. We want people to react to our Facebook posts and Instagram and Twitter we want people to like our tweets and hearts. And, I mean, with, with hearts and those pictures. Don't you just love seeing the red heart? Man, I get that. Like, I, know, I know like physically it releases some sort of hormone in all of our bodies. And we're just like, that feeling of, oh, that feels good. We love those hearts and those thumbs up. And now there's all kinds of stuff. And it's just another way that we really wish somebody would find us and say, everyone is looking for you. But that is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is not popularity. The way of Jesus is obscurity. The way of Jesus is being invisible. Doing the mundane with no cameras around, no social media posts, no hashtags. And that goes against our very nature because we want to be somebody. The Counting Crows have a, a song called Mr. Jones. And they say, and the, and the singer Adam Duritz sings in it, we all want to be Big, big stars, but we got different reasons for that. When I stare at the television, I want to see me staring right back at me. If we're honest with ourselves, in our own way and in the places where we live, we long to hear those words, everyone is looking for you. Well, I read a verse this morning that stopped me in my track, Psalm 39.4. Oh, Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Who prays that? Who prays, God, let me know how indispensable I am? Or dispensable. That's what I meant to say. See? Right? God, God, let me know how if I just vanished from the earth, your kingdom would march on. 
right? Who prays like that? That is, Psalm 39 verse 4 is the exact opposite of attention-getting social media posts. Show me how fleeting I am. Jesus was so popular that he could not even enter into a town without causing a traffic jam. I mean, shouldn't he seize this opportunity? This ministry opportunity? It's ministry, Jesus. Why not make a name for yourself? In the name of ministry, of course. Well, Jesus will have none of that. Jesus doesn't want anything to do with being a celebrity pastor. You know, it's sad. That's a phrase that's common now. Celebrity pastor. How did that come to be? How sad. What kind of culture, what kind of churches and Christians are we that we have celebrity pastors? Jesus doesn't want to be a celebrity pastor. Jesus doesn't want to be a celebrity rabbi. His way is the way of the invisible, behind the scenes, doing the ordinary, doing the mundane. Jesus doesn't need a hashtag to do ministry. That's shocking for our culture and our time. It's not his way. Jesus didn't take pictures of himself serving at a soup kitchen. And then, you know, take a selfie and then put a hashtag up that says Jesus serves. That's not the way of Jesus. It's not the way of the kingdom. Zach Eswine tells us, he says, Jesus is fame shy. Jesus seemed drawn not to the spotlight, but from it. Disciples and friends had to search. He wasn't tweeting. His blog lay unattended. His email responses were not immediate. Where they often found him was alone and in desolate places praying. In fact, it seems that just when Jesus was at the right place at the right time and the opportunity to to advance his work through greater celebrity called out to him, he intentionally allowed the call to go to voicemail and disappeared for a while. Listen, if we are going to follow Jesus as disciples... We have to come to grips with the fact that Jesus is not interested in helping us make a name for ourselves. This is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is not interested in helping us make a name for Grace Baptist Church in the city. Jesus is not interested in making us the most popular, most talked about church in this city. Jesus is only interested in his glory and his kingdom advancing in our city. He's only interested in helping us as we make disciple making disciples who glorify him. Jesus does not come alongside us to help build up our own little kingdoms. That very idea makes Jesus throw up. It nauseates him. His way is not the way of numbers. It's not the way of figures. It's not the way of crowds. His way is the way of the invisible, the mundane, and the ordinary. Jesus cares about people, not winning a popularity contest. He's not like us. Now, we love to have our egos stroked, don't we? We love to have someone publicly stroke our ego, and then we respond maybe like this. Oh, stop, please, really. Stop. No, really. It's okay. We wouldn't run from this fame stuff that Jesus is experiencing here. We would relish in it. We would steer conversations so that they continue to be about us, but not Jesus. He wants nothing to do with this. See, that's how God's law exposes us and exposes the unevangelized dark continents in our hearts. 
But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus raises the banner over our selfishness, over our desire to be famous, over our desire to be liked by people. And on the cross, Jesus took our desire for fame. He took our desire to be known and loved by many. He took our desire to be somebody, and he gave us his humility. He gave us his meekness. He gave us his trust and rest in his Father. He exchanged his humility for our pride. Jesus teaches us that the really sweet spot in life and ministry is being alone, away from the spotlight with our Father in prayer. It doesn't get any better than that. Jesus got away from the crowds because he knew that obscurity and being alone with his Father is what he needed. Obscurity is the sweet spot of ministry. Being alone Away from the crowds, that's where we find rest. It's where we find meaning. Meaning is not found in how many followers you have, how many likes you get, how many retweets you get, how big your church or ministry is, how awesome you seem to be in the eyes of others. Meaning and purpose is found in being in relationship with God. It's union with Christ. It's being adopted into God's family. Jesus knew that he must get away and talk to God. Do we really think that we can survive by not doing what Jesus does here after a very long day of ministry? Jesus tries to pray early in the morning and then he gets interrupted. Why did Jesus refuse to sign a book deal with Crossway? Why did Jesus refuse to give in to all the accolades and the attention of the crowds? Because he wanted the good news of the gospel to go forth. He came to preach good news to weary sinners. He didn't come to be famous, but to cry out, it is finished on the cross. And so Mark is telling us two things about Jesus' ministry that we would do well to emulate. Number one, Jesus prayed to God. Number two, Jesus preached the gospel. There's some free alliteration for those of you who love alliteration in sermons. Jesus prayed to God, and Jesus preached the gospel. And that's exactly what I believe that Jesus wants us to be focusing on right now at Grace. Of course, we always want to be doing this, right? But we're in a season where we recognize our need of God. And we need to make a concerted effort to pray more, pray more while we preach good news to our city. And so who wants in? There's the cycle in verses 35 to 39. Pray and preach. You begin praying, you align your heart with God so that you want to go preach and share good news with your neighbors and co-workers. And then when you see some people reject this good news and you become aware that only God can change people's hearts and you then encounter the brokenness that's out there in our world, then that makes you go where? Back to prayer. And that's the cycle. And that's what Jesus is doing in the Gospels. He prays, he preaches. He prays, he preaches. Look at verses 38 and 39 again. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Jesus came because there aren't supposed to be demon-possessed men. Jesus came because there aren't supposed to be children with cancer. Jesus came because there aren't supposed to be neglected spouses. He came to be the second Adam because the first Adam messed it all up. And that's why Jesus doesn't plant a church in Capernaum. He knew there were more people who needed help. More people who needed to hear 
the good news that God is kind and loving and merciful to sinners. More people needed to be released from demonic oppression. He wasn't interested in planting a church in Capernaum and becoming a celebrity pastor. Jesus is determined to preach the gospel to weary sinners. And he's determined to get to the cross. And that's the ultimate meeting place of those two aspects of Jesus' ministry. Preaching and exorcisms. It was at the cross. Jesus died for us. And on the cross, as Colossians 2 tells us, he made a public spectacle of the devil. Yes, Jesus did not mind healing people. He did not mind casting out demons. But his main mission was to live and die for sinners, not to become the cool, hip church in town that everybody was flocking to. That's why he didn't set up shop in Capernaum. He came to die. He didn't come to mainly work miracles. He came to be a savior, a redeemer. He came to heal the deeper wound that we all have, which is sin. That's our sickness. And Jesus came to save us and forgive us on the cross. That's where he was headed, the cross. Not church planting in Capernaum. He was on mission. And part of the reason why Jesus is praying here in Mark chapter 1 is so that he will have strength through the Holy Spirit to go to the cross to complete his mission of being the second Adam. And so in one sense, our salvation is is related to the prayers of Jesus in these quiet moments alone with his Father, like here in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. In one sense, we are saved through the prayers of Jesus because his times in prayer empowered him to resist temptation and then to go to the cross to die for our sins. I mean, have you ever thought about that? His prayers played a role in our salvation Our salvation is dependent on the fact that Jesus got away to desolate places to pray early in the morning when it was dark. We wouldn't be saved if Jesus wasn't an early riser. We wouldn't be saved if Jesus was one of those people who pushed the snooze button 20 times. I'm so glad that Jesus prayed. I'm so glad he prayed. And if you know that you like Jesus, can't do life on your own, then prayer makes complete sense. In other words, you can't do diddly squat without Jesus. And that's why we should pray right now. Father, we admit that we are needy children. Whether things are going well or not so well, we are needy whether we're meeting budget and there's lots of excess are coming in under and draining the savings, whether all our kids are loving Jesus and walking with him or whether all of them are prodigals. We need you all the time. Would you make us a church that just takes this passage to heart says, I need God so bad. I have to pray with no guilt or shame, Father, just that we want to be with you because we love you. We just want to be with you. Make us a church that just can't get away, Father. Do it for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name.